Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. Welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane Lamaster. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, 
This is why we do this thing, guys, is for you, for you listeners out there. So thank you so much for tuning in. If you like the content that you get on this podcast, please like and share um, on your social media outlets however you can. If it helps to you know, highlight and, and cut and paste the actual link to the podcast in your own uh, news feeds, um, you know, do whatever you can to help us get the podcast out there. Share the conversation with family and friends, too. It's all good. Any way that you can share this thing and get more people involved, the better. Um, also, guys, if you find any value to this podcast whatsoever, uh, please consider donating. It's not a requirement. This thing is free. That's why I love it so much. Um, but it's also, um, you know, it, it costs money to, to pay electricity and uh, to get microphones and to pay for some guest speaking fees and things like that. So uh, please consider donating. Even a dollar here and there is great, but not required at all. Just uh, most importantly, continue to listen and have these conversations with yourself and with other people. Also, if you guys want to, uh, go to our YouTube page. It's really cool. Uh, that's the Mind Ops YouTube page, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. There we have a lot of the videos of these uh, podcast interviews, including this one, um, so you can go there, you can subscribe to the to the YouTube, and then you can get updates whenever we put new podcasts up on there. Also, uh, tons of playlists of lots of videos related to the content that we talk about on this podcast. And folks, feel free. This is a collaborative effort between all of us. This isn't just my show. This is our show. And... I need your help. So if you find YouTube videos that are relevant to some of the topics that we talk about, um, if you find interviews uh, on YouTube or online that, that would be useful to me or suggestions for guests or whatever, please share those. Find some way to uh, get them to me. Email me these YouTube videos or, or comment in the box with a link or something so that I can start including them on the podcast and the, uh, the YouTube page as well. So, um, yeah, let's collaborate. Let's, let's make this, um, let's make this platform for consciousness education grow and grow and grow. And, uh, you guys are as big a part of that as me. So your contributions, your thoughts, your ideas, your creations, um, are so valuable. Uh, all it takes is for you to reach out. So please support us on YouTube. All right, folks. Um, we'll be right back, but now a quick word from our sponsor. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen OPS.com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face -face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page. Okay, open up your ear holes and open up your mind. Here's some good news about to filter in that brain of yours. 
and hopefully it'll bring a smile to your face. All right, folks, today's good news story comes from the Good News Network. You can find it at goodnewsnetwork.org. The title of the article today reads, Island on California Coast is Returned to Indigenous Tribe in Unprecedented Restoration of Land Rights. Um, I thought this was a really cool article, especially um, right now I'm in the process of taking uh, an elective class in my PhD program called uh, Human Environment Interactions. And it's it's mostly about uh, human and environment interactions uh, in relation to climate change, but there has been a section and quite a bit of talk about indigenous cultures, land rights issues, um, and this issue in particular, uh, this article, I should say, popped right out at me because it was right in line with what, we, what we've been learning about and I've uh, been seeing really cool articles similar to this one popping up in the news. I think there was another one recently where i don't know if you guys have heard this it's been all over the news um but there's been fires going on in the amazon uh you know logging companies um going way too deep into the into the rainforest and chopping down way too much of the the land and some are saying that they think that the fires have been started by some of the logging companies in order to make it easier for them to move in. Um, but indigenous peoples in those places in South America have been fighting really hard against those companies. And I recently just saw another article uh, kind of related to this one, but another article showing how um, the indigenous peoples of a certain tribe won in court down there and got um, their land rights back. And uh, the loggers had to move out, and that was a great win. So this one, um, also in that spirit, is another great win. Okay, so this talks about a city council meeting in Eureka, California. Um, Let's see. It says the city formally transferred Indian Island, Indian Island in quotations, back to the uh, Weot tribe, I probably did not pronounce that correctly, which had for decades held sacred ceremonies annually for generations until 1860, um, when I guess the, the municipalities took over the land and um, said it was theirs. So, let's see, the peoples had been, uh, the indigenous peoples had been pursuing legal channels for a number of years and hadn't got very far, uh, including fundraising efforts to raise $100,000 to purchase uh, a 1.5-acre lot um, where the ritual ceremony was held in, in 2014. Um, so let's see. So four years later, the city gave the tribe another 40 acres on the island, Um and the transfer of the remaining 200-plus acres was completed on October 21, 2019, after a unanimous vote from Eureka City Council. That is awesome. Um, and it seems like what's, interest, what's most interesting to the writer of this article um, was that the transfer of land came without much precedent. So um, there's a quote here. And he says, nonprofits and the federal government have returned land to native people, but nobody consulted by the journal could recall a local municipality 
repatriating hundreds of acres of land to a local tribe in the absence of a sale or lawsuit settlement. So that's the cool part about this article is there was no lawsuit. There was no sale uh, to the tribe for the remainder of the of the land. Um, it was simply just offered back up and repatriated to the uh, the originators from that land. Um, so that's why they think this is uh, such a huge deal, not just because it was a victory for indigenous uh, land use being returned, but also um, because it serves as a model for other other municipalities, other governments, other people to to take it to heart to um, to make a concerted effort to be proactive in these ways. Uh, it's still reactive to you know to the colonialization and the things that we. Uh, have taken from these people, um, but it is proactive in the sense that um, we're not waiting until they sue or we're not waiting until there's a major issue, but instead we find opportunities or we need to find more opportunities like this to offer things up um, uh, in good faith, in reparation, in uh, you know, in respect, we need to offer these 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 things back up and find these opportunities more and more so because they're only going to serve to unify us closer together uh, rather than push us further apart um, when we start thinking of things as yours and mine and um, I'm a government and you're an indigenous people so I have more uh, rights over land than you do. So, interesting story. I hope you liked it. I hope it puts a smile on your face. I hope it it makes you feel like there's some uh, there's some good going on in the world because there most certainly is among all those negative news stories that you hear. There most certainly is um, a lot of good things going on. All right. So today for a conversation with my mind, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. And... Um, yeah, this is this is going to be an interesting one. Okay, so we've all heard um, the phrase, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey, right? <clears throat> blah, blah, blah. Very cliche, right? We've all heard it, but so powerful and um, amazing when you really think about it. Um, and that's really what I've been thinking about a lot, a lot lately, um, because I have always been very achievement driven. I've been driven by closure, by completion, by, um, by accomplishment, by striving and challenging myself to push through difficult things or putting myself, uh, intentionally through difficult things in order to come out better on the other side or in order to have the knowledge that what I just achieved was possible and is therefore possible in the future. Um, so I've always been driven um, this way, almost oriented towards that outcome. Um, and the journey was there the whole time, and I had a blast, and I still have a blast along the journey. Um, but the majority of my free mental time was spent thinking about outcomes rather than about process. Um, and so I've been reflecting on that a lot lately. And although I have this mantra, this 
piece of knowledge that um, the process is more important than the outcome. Um, it's difficult to necessarily live into that in every single moment. And it's something that I encourage my clients and something that I, I teach um, to students too, um, to focus on the process. And yet it's still always something that I am constantly working on. I am constantly reverting my um, attention and becoming more and more mindful of the process, the unfolding, the magic the freaking amazing psychedelic trip that is this life. Um, it is constantly unfolding. And if I'm constantly looking into the future to some outcome, then I'm really missing a big piece of what's going on right in front of me. And the more I thought about it, you know, it really seems like a total disservice and almost, you know, it was really sad to think that I was denying myself so much that this life is offering me in every single moment. This life, this universe is trying to communicate its wonder to me in every single second. Um, and it's only because I'm not disciplined enough or that my, that the nature of my mind uh, wanders that I'm not able to tap into that process 100% of the time. Now, with mindfulness practice and meditation and uh, my martial arts and lots of other practices, um, they have helped me to be able to get to present moment mindfulness and to maintain that mindfulness uh, across a wide spectrum of activities, across wide uh, spans of time, um, in various situations and with various people. Yet, I'm still unable to hold that focus 100% of the time. And so my mind will still drift into the past or into the future, um, focusing on past outcomes or future potential outcomes. And again, you know, as long as my energy is somewhere else besides the present, it leaves less energy for the present moment. So again, back to the phrase. It's more about the journey than the destination. It's more about the process than the outcome. So what does that mean? What does it mean for you guys? When you hear me say that, what is what comes up for you? I think that everybody's going to have a little bit of a different flavor to it. But for me, coming from a sports psychology background, I mean, we talk of things like performance goals, process goals, outcome goals. And there's good research showing that athletes that focus on performance and process goals um, tend to sustain interest in their sport longer, tend to have greater success in their sport, tend to find greater happiness in their sport than those who focus on outcome goals. Okay, so that's one thing. Now, from my experience as a human being on this planet... Like I said, most of my life, I've been probably more focused on outcomes than the process. But by my nature as a human being, I am in constant flux. I am in constant change. I am a constant process of atoms and molecules and cells and processes and chemical interactions and electrochemical uh, interactions and all these things going on. A human being 
is not necessarily a thing. It is a process, a process conducted by many things um, in an effort to make this system function in the way that it does. So as a human being, I am a process in one way or another. As a human being, you are a process uh, in one way or another. And we have influence and control over that process in a lot of different ways. And we don't have control over it in a lot of different ways. Um, some of us need to wake up a little bit more to the ways that we do have influence over ourselves and take responsibility and action towards uh, healthier outcomes. That's for sure. Um, I assess myself all the time in those senses, you know, like how can I better improve myself? What sort of things do I need to get rid of? What behaviors are damaging to me? What thoughts am I having that are not suiting me? How can I get rid of them? How can I change them? What do they mean? All these things, self-exploration, self-growth, self-change, self-guided growth, self-driven growth. No one's going to force you to grow, people. You have to do it yourself, okay? And growth is a process in, of, in and of itself. It's also an outcome, but it's an outcome that comes along the process. You're constantly getting the outcome of growth in every single moment if you're working on the process, if you're focused on the process of growing. And that's different for everybody. So ask yourself, what does my process of growing look like? What am I doing right now in my life to help grow my intellect, to help grow my emotional intelligence, to help grow my connectivity and relationships with others, to help grow and foster health in my physical mental, and spiritual selves? What am I doing to engage in this process that is being offered and set at my feet as such a blessing? Am I engaging it at all? And if not, why not? So again, back to the phrase. It's about the process, not the outcome. Okay? Um... I think the best way, so I've given you a little background of as far as like how I've come to believe what I believe, but I haven't gotten quite to how I feel about it um, from my experience. And I want to share that piece now. So for me, being in the process, being in the moment and having gratitude and humility and exuberance and witnessing the beauty of that process is for me anyway, a form of enlightenment that I can have in every single moment. You know, in, in a lot of religious or spiritual or philosophical traditions, they talk about this outcome of, um, you know, in, in Buddhism, it's nirvana or enlightenment. In Christianity and Catholicism, it might be the death experience and, and going to heaven or hell. Um you know, and, and every culture has their stories around um, a supposed outcome of life. Um, but that's going to be guaranteed. You know, we're, we're all guaranteed to pass through that threshold when it's our time. That's the, the least, the thing that needs to be the least of our worries, okay, is, is the things that are, th that thing that is guaranteed at the end. Um, or should I say at the new beginning, 
But the process that we're engaging in now, in this human lifetime, in this incarnation, in this moment, because this moment is all we really have, but it is this process that we can find that which we seek in the outcome. We seek the answers. We seek to know. We seek to love. We seek to share. We seek connection as outcomes. And the more we seek, the less we can grasp onto them because we get attached to the process of seeking rather than just being. Did that land with you all? So what does that mean? That means by seeking after an outcome, it may always just be outside of your grasp. But by relaxing into the process, um, you're going to be more aware and more capable of accessing those every moment outcomes that are inherently going to build towards that final goal that you want. But that's not here in the moment, so why are you diverting so much energy to that? Let's focus on the miracles, the unfoldings that are happening right now in this moment that are building towards that. So it's not a bad thing to have long-term goals and um, look forward to uh, happy outcomes. That's great. It's great to visualize around those things. It helps to manifest them, but... It also helps to not get bogged down by getting stuck in the outcomes. Staying focused on the process, since you're going to be spending 99.999% of your life in the process, it behooves you to pay more attention to that process. You're going to be spending very little time in the outcome state itself before you start changing into some other um, form. So might as well pay more attention to that process here and now. Okay. That was long-winded piece of my mind. Uh, our guest today, very, very special guest. Um, so glad to have him on, Dr. James Fadiman. Now, um, Dr. Fadiman, uh, he could be considered um, the godfather of microdosing. Um, he has been a psychedelic researcher uh, since the beginning days, since the 60s. Um, he uh, did a lot of things at Harvard University where he got his degree, um, studied consciousness for a vast majority of his career, and um, was really in the mix with psychedelic research before it became prohibited um, by the government. And um, he's still been active um, in his own ways and has been one of the biggest compilers of uh, anecdotal microdosing stories and information um, that I think has ever been uh, around on this planet. He's certainly been somebody that I've looked up to for a long time. Um, he's considered one of the elders in the field of psychedelics, you know, up there with um, people like Tim Leary and uh, Ken Kesey and, and a lot of the folks that, um, you know, we all know from textbooks and things like that. Um, so very grateful to have Dr. Fadiman on the show today. Last time he and I spoke was at the 2017 Psychedelic Science Conference where we, we had a really good conversation um, about jujitsu and psychedelics, and we'll go into that conversation as well as um, sort of our ideas that have uh, 
continue to grow around that topic in particular. Um, but yeah, I really hope you guys like the show. It was really good talking to him. We covered a ton of great topics, for everything from transpersonal psychology to uh, social justice in psychedelics to uh, microdosing to macrodosing to mystical state experiences and uh, all the way back around at the beginning and the end to talk about consciousness and our many selves and how we think about the many selves and the stories we tell ourselves in our cultures and the story, how the stories differ across cultures around this uh, aspect of the many selves. Um, so very fascinating conversation. Definitely one of my favorites so far. I hope you guys like it a lot. Um, Please comment and share. Go check out the description. I've left contact information uh, contact information for Dr. Fadiman. Um, and uh, so, yeah, if you guys want to reach out to me or him, you can contact him through that uh, website, um, or you can contact me through our MindOps website. Enjoy the show, folks. Here we go. All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane LaMaster. Um, we're here for episode 61 with very special guest, uh, Dr. James Fadiman. And do you prefer if I uh, call you Dr. Fadiman or is it okay to call you uh, Jim or James? Jim would probably be easiest for both of us. Okay, great. Um, so very, um, in my opinion, very high esteemed guest to have you on today. I want to thank you for your time. I know it's very valuable. You're a very busy man. Um, and I'm trying to do my part in order to spread some of this important knowledge about what it means to be human and what it means to have a consciousness and get more people to start thinking about these questions that I think underlie everything, everything else that we explore. Um, and so my first question is the only standardized question that I have on the show. And that is, uh, and I w I'd actually like to start by um, quoting um, this first chapter that you sent me, uh, this book chapter uh, in Healthy Selves, just the, ver the very first uh, paragraph of chapter one says, all human beings, including those who are the healthiest and most successful, are composed of more than one self. When things are going well, each plays its rightful role as part of our, our harmonious symphony. We really are different people or have different minds, parts, or personalities in different moments and in different contexts. And my only standardized question goes right along with that, and that is, what does the phrase conversations with the mind mean to you? That's the title of the show, um, and the audience knows what it means to me, but you, you have um, some deep insight into what this, what this could mean for us. Well, that's really wonderful, because obviously from what you read uh, of our book now called Your Symphony of Selves, um, is conversation uh, within the mind is that uh, awareness <coughs> that you have within you, um, several of you, and that they do talk to each other. And um, at, at one level, we have this problem with this book, which is at one level, it's unbelievably obvious. If I say to someone, uh, have you ever argued with yourself? And everybody says, yes. And that other person and people get, oh, mm -hmm. The other level is that it is a, an obviousness which is absolutely um, denied by the conventional cultures, both um, in religion and in psychology. So 
we're we're putting out uh, at one level this incredibly radical that you are not a single unified um, boring self, and on the other hand, we're saying since everybody knows this intuitively as soon as we mention it, how can we justify a very long book? <laughs> so for us, conversations in the mind is the way it is, and conversation between minds. Um, it can be rather large groups if you actually think about it. Yeah, I've read some um, really impressive uh, studies that, you know, they'll, they'll sort of take crime statistics and link them up with um, national prayer days or national meditation days that certain countries hold and see a drastic reduction in, in crime rates across the world on those days during those times. And uh, I've had some collective experiences um, you know, both in sports as well as in, um, you know, psychedelic circles where the collective mind, the collective um, consciousnesses that, that come together have a very profound um, additive effect to each other um, in yeah. a lot of ways. And, and we have so, some informal studies that were done uh, when the Grateful Dead were touring um, where large audiences, and I have a lot of reports from friends from around the country, is the feeling of being in a single mind, um, aided undoubtedly by lots of psychedelics in those concerts. Uh, but it was very, very um, palatable. You know, people could really taste it in a way that they didn't in conventional life. So if we if we can have this understanding and somehow get past our current stuckness to embrace this um this idea that we have many selves uh what are some of the implications that you think could come from that um on an individual level as well as for humanity well um i'm not sure about humanity particularly uh, the current humanity um but individually it's pretty straightforward is one of the things you think about uh, think about someone who you know very well, perhaps you live with, perhaps you've been married to or been a parent or child of, and you notice that they're inconsistent, that they are, some of the, sometimes they behave very differently, and you either are upset or you get mad at them or you are uh, sorry for them. You have various ways you handle that, unless you begin to say, no, no, each self is consistent. Um, I, I remember vividly visiting my mother when I was about 50. And uh, she lived in Florida and we're about to go out. And she said to me, don't you think you should put on a sweater? And I thought, actually, in my 50 years of life, I have actually learned whether to know whether I would put on a sweater or not all by myself. <laughs> And uh, what I saw was this kind of mothering behavior, somewhat automatic. She had not very good circulation, so she would get chilled sooner than other people. So it was, it was projection, and, and we just went on with that. Um, and the visit didn't go terribly well. And I said something incredibly kind of mean and crummy to my stepfather. I said, how do you stand living with her? Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and she, he said, she's only that way when you're here. And as I now reflect on that, what it was is she had a self which was linked to mothering. And we all, those of us with children know that one. And when I would arrive, she slipped into it and would behave from that place. But it was, it was her, definitely. But it was not the her that she was when she was with her husband. 
So what you begin to get if you see the people you're close to as selves, when they're in a self that you're not comfortable with, that's just a part of them. And what we see is people become kinder to each other, um, genuinely compassionate, and then they begin to forgive themselves because they say, gee, um, I, I can't, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that I really said that to you last night. And the answer is the I who's apologizing didn't. Mm-hmm. So that you're, you're beginning to get that there, there's a group in there and your goal is not to smush them into what we call the single self um, uh, fallacy, but to begin to harmonize, which is your goal is to be in the right self at the right time. So right now, you're in your kind of uh, media intellectual self. Now, when you go out on the mat, that's not the self that, um, that could do a very good job. But the one on the mat, it's absolutely clear uh, what, it's, what it's doing, where its attention is, what its loves and fears are. And so, but when you come off the mat, it takes you probably a little while to, uh, to not be that way because it's really uncomfortable probably to be around you when you're in your, your martial arts self. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does make sense. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think uh, I'm a pretty happy-go-lucky guy when I'm in my martial arts environment um, because the environment does that to me and the people that I train with does that to me. Sure. Um, but yeah, the idea of different selves definitely makes sense. And um, as a practicing therapist, I think when clients come to me and they, they ask me about this or they talk to me about um, different parts of themselves speaking, um, I almost like to use uh, metaphors to help people to understand um, this idea of, of not coalescing into this unified self, but almost like your yourself big s is this uh house or a cabin and it has a round table with all these different versions of you around it and each one has a say at the table but who's doing most of the speaking um and and with your examples um a question came up and and uh, i was wondering if i can certainly see how we can switch between different selves based on who we're with you know, I can, I can get together with a best friend I haven't seen since I was a kid and I'll go right back into that, um, adolescent shame. Um, but is it possible too to have multiple, um, voices, multiple versions of self emerging simultaneously, um, like in collaboration or is ideal, uh, you know, I'm, I'm big into optimal functioning. So is it perhaps ideal if we weren't unifying them into all one, voice but instead had perfect collaboration and and um uh, compassion like you said across the table well that's the goal that's where we're headed which is um as i say we called our book the symphony of selves to give the the image because when you listen to a symphony you're listening to people playing totally different instruments totally different tempos with totally different notes but they are also hearing each other and they are cooperating in a way that gives you um, an overall effect that's impossible for any of the single groups or single players to achieve. So if you see a, uh, a football team, what you're seeing is a lot of people with very specialized skills 
operating both independently and totally, if they're good, with awareness of each other. And that's true in, in any team sport. And so what we're looking at is, is the goal is to be a peaceful, unified, effective being who puts the right self at the right time. So, um, so at the moment, you and I are both in our media selves. Mm -hmm. For instance, I'm aware that I'm speaking in complete sentences. Now, I write fiction, and when you listen to actual human beings doing dialogue in the street or anywhere, um, their grammar is terrible. Uh, and it's one of the ways you differentiate um, kind of written speech from spoken speech is that spoken speech is much messier. Uh, but when you're doing something like we're doing, which is a, a kind of cross between the two, you adjust into um, that mode. So that the, the, what we're saying is mental health is being in the right self at the right time, or now and then in the right selves at the right time. Those we find that more, um, more often in highly creative, successful people. Mm -hmm. They usually uh, will say, of course, I know everything that you're talking about, and here's how it works for me. And uh, we have in the book a wonderful essayist who writes about his, indeed, exactly your metaphor, his round table. Mm -hmm. and, uh, his job is to chair the meeting. <laughs> right, yeah, and I think that links up perfectly with... Um you know, some other theories from other fields about executive functioning and things like that, literally using the word executive as, as uh, a way to, you know, in a metaphor, you know, who's, who's the chair chairman of the board, you know, all the board members have a say in the process, but who is really doing the filtering. And there are a lot of systems that, that talk about it um, and even get very close to where we're talking. And then right at the end, they say, but really, 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 there's a single super or higher or more beautiful or something special self. And what we notice is at that point, they stop using evidence and they kind of go back to uh, a kind of monotheism of self as a belief, not, as a, not from knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't think the conversation has to stop there. Uh, I'm, I'm learning right now in my social work PhD program all about different forms of knowledge, different uh, ways of knowing. And um, I'm, a, you know, in social work, we're a social science. So we push hard in the idea that subjective knowledge um, is just as valid or just as important as uh, objective, testable knowledge. And I think when we start to venture into the area of the spiritual and start to talk about these ethereal concepts that science hasn't caught up yet in how to, uh, I guess, study it directly. Um, you know, people kind of either they, their ideas of evidence stop at um, quantitative or, um, you know, I like to push these conversations a little more forward, bringing in personal experiences, near death experiences, common experiences shared between people in all these altered states. Um, to kind of move that conversation forward a little bit into the idea of subjective knowledge and, and the validity of that. Well, science only makes one fundamental error and it's the same error that religion makes. It says it's the only game in town. 
Um, there's nothing wrong with science and there's nothing wrong with objective, meaning someone else can see the same fact at the same time. Uh, and that's good for what you use it for. To use it, say, for uh, if someone says, well, you've told me your dream, but I, I know more than you do about your dream. We know that they're, they have veered off of science into a kind of uh, scientistic irrationality. And uh, William James has a great term, which is called the, the sentiment of rationality, meaning the feeling that I'm being rational. Um, and I'll give you the example that I love, which is um, you're quarreling with someone and they say, let's be rational about this. And what I've taught people, I've taught couples, thousands of couples, is to say, okay, we'll be rational for five minutes and then we'll be irrational. And I say to them, don't worry, it won't take five minutes. <laughs> because people immediately who are being, quote, rational, get upset because what you've just done was call their game. Which is they're saying, I want to have this argument in a realm in which I know how to play, even though that's just, that won't work because you're not going to play in that realm. And if we're going to talk about, if we're arguing, we're already in the realm of feelings. We're already have left, quote, rationality. Um, and I think James caught it beautifully by saying it's a feeling. And I know lots of people in the sciences who, who if you push them, they say, I like that feeling. You know, if someone says to me, well, uh, something about your research, but what's, you know, what's the percentage of people who such and such? And I say, um, that's really important to you, isn't it? And, and they say, well, well yes, it is. <laughs> and, and then we could go in that direction. Usually they get very uncomfortable because their fantasy is that facts that cannot be refuted, uh, like two and two is four um, in certain systems, uh, are somehow a superior form of knowledge. And remember, I started this little rap by saying this is similar to religion. And the thing about certain religions, Christianity being the most egregious, is the notion that there is only one truth. We have it. And if you don't have it, you're a bad person. Mm. And I see it's identical to scientists who are caught um, in only having a rational mode. Mm. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um, I mean, it speaks directly to the the dualism that I think we're stuck in. You know, if you don't hold my beliefs, then you're wrong. Um, that's that's a big root of the problem. Um, getting getting back to you know issues that are kind of um, difficult for scientists to to wrap their heads around. I was hoping that um, that you could speak a little bit to transpersonal psychology uh, and your efforts in the beginning to bring this about. Um, it's something that I'm, I'm very passionate about. And in social work, there's a few publications on transpersonal uses, um, but it has largely been left out of social work practice. You know, as a therapist in, in my training, I was told to avoid spiritual concepts. Don't talk about them with your clients. And from my own experiences, I know how powerful and, life shaping those can be for me, um, which is why I'm exploring mystical experiences in my dissertation. But um, 
I was wondering if you could speak to transpersonal psychology um, and how it can like play a role in uh, current thinking. Well, let me, let me go back a step because it, it, the metaphor of you, you shouldn't talk about spiritual things with your clients. Well, let's go back and now you're a Victorian psychotherapist. And of course you're told, don't talk about anything sexual with your clients because that's offensive and will disturb them. And you, as a good Victorian psychotherapist, uh, are clear that that's an area which we don't talk about. But as a human being, we know that if you don't talk about sexuality, you're going to miss a lot of what's going on in a human being. The identical argument is for spiritual experience. Uh, one of the few groups that ever imagines that spiritual experience is linked to psychopathology are psychologists. And it is one of the central criticisms that psychology deals with, which is to train people to not look at some area of experience um, is on the surface, on the rational surface, total nonsense. Hmm. That's like saying, don't talk about anything you do with your left hand. Because we know that the left hand in history is the sinister, the sinestra, the, the hand that does bad things. So we're not going to talk about it. Uh, and your client will say, I'm going to pay you for that kind of nonsense. <laughs> so that's, that's a kind of just so we know where I'm coming from. So there's no tolerance here. <laughs> so transpersonal psychology came out of that awareness that we were missing a huge part of human experience and that that part of human experience mattered in every culture that has ever existed and we were in the one culture called the scientific culture where it was being denied and it was no different than the victorian repression of sexuality what people are worried about from the therapist's point of view is that people who have spiritual experiences um, are talking about different truths. And if someone has been um, saved from sin by accepting Jesus Christ, they are not worse, better, or different than someone who says, uh, my ayahuasca plant speaks to me and gives me advice about my friendship patterns. We're simply saying to people, what is your experience? And if I'm a therapist, the problem that I see is how is your experience not serving you? And could it be that you have beliefs such as I have to be a unified self that simply um, make it harder for you to find real reality? So that reality has to be larger than, quote, objective reality or psychodynamic reality or Freudian reality uh, or behaviorist reality. Uh, these are all subsets. And the subset are all subsets of consciousness. And the way I look at, at belief systems, psychotherapeutic belief systems, religious belief systems, scientific belief systems, and it's a metaphor which, um, which I hope is okay, is they're all flavors of ice cream. And what we know is there are people who will argue that butter brickle 
is superior to strawberry. And they can get fairly heated up about it, but we know beneath that, they both agree that it's all ice cream. And so when I'm working with someone, I'm very comfortable with that it's all ice cream. So if someone says to me, um, I have a voice inside me that tells me that stealing is acceptable. And therefore, I keep stealing and I'm with you because the courts have sent me to you because I keep getting arrested for stealing, even though I have this voice inside me that says it's okay. So the, the problem that I'm now with is not, do you have a voice inside you? Because they do. The, the point is their voice is giving them very bad advice. Now, I know people who listen to, um, showing my own bias here, say Fox News. And I think they get fairly bad advice. Um, and they think I get bad advice. But we all agree that it's news. Mm-hmm. So the transpersonal says, let's look at the whole of human experience, which includes what's quote called the paranormal, um, angelic voices, um, spirit possession, um, clairvoyance, or what I love is people who can see the future, because that really threatens the rational world the most, that the future can be in some sense known, which means it already has occurred. That's hard for people. And actually, that's hard for me too. <laughs> but that's, those are the ones I get stuck on. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, being a practitioner for a while now and now going back into academia, I get to explore my own practice from uh, a different lens and my experience from a different lens. And what I'm noticing in practice is that so many of my clients um, want to bring spiritual issues into therapy. And luckily, I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. You know, I kind of go against what I've been taught in that sense. I know how important it is for me. Um, but what sort of damage um, do you think? I mean, it seems to me very apparent the damage that is being done by, you know, in the education of these counselors, telling them to ignore these aspects of self, um, you know, the spiritual is is super important. I think in the first, um, in in this book right here, uh, I don't know if you can see it, Eminent yeah. Elders, yeah. Yeah, you wrote a chapter in that as well. Um, and you spoke about your early days uh, co-teaching a course on consciousness at Harvard. And um, you talk spirits, uh, specifically about the the best and highest a human can be in these different domains, psychological, philosophical, mysticism, and personal experience. I was wondering if, if that ties in um, with what we're talking about here with transpersonal and some of the potentials, but also some of the damages that are being done by leaving some of those aspects of self out. We're not allowing ourselves, we're kind of putting a cap on what our human potential is by limiting our beliefs and by, you know, we're, we're putting the governor on ourselves. Well, we get those governors at an early age. And among the other things I taught was um, a whole course on, quote, affirmations or goal setting or using positive statements. And what I'd say to people is, In your childhood, you were told who you were. You're the nice, particularly if you have siblings. You're the nice one. You're the smart one. You're the mean one. Um, And who taught you that? Well, these giant beings, much more important than God, which were your parents, because God kind of leaves you alone. 
but your parents tell you when to get up, when to sleep, what to eat, how to swallow, and what to wear, who you can talk to. So they're really powerful. They also can hit you. Okay. So imagine your your parent says to you, "You're really stupid." And you think, I don't feel stupid. However, God, these, de these deities have told me I'm stupid. I better begin to conform to the reality that I've been told. Or I'm not as nice as my sister. And when I uh, work with a group of people, sometimes I'll say, who among you was the good child? And you know, people raise their hands. And then I say, who among you was the bad child? And the other group raised their hands. But they always smile. Okay? And I know why they're smiling. Because bad children have more freedom than good children. Okay? So they get this from their parents that you're not, you are the one who both can do what's right, but you also can do what's wrong. So you actually have a wider range of, of, of activities in your life than your goody two-shoes um, sister or brother. And that's why they're smiling. And when I say that, they all laugh. And the, the, the ones who've been good children have this moment where they realize that part of their childhood was taken away from them. Because once they were told they were good, in a situation where it was ambiguous, they would go only in one direction and they would miss opportunities. So when you begin to talk that way, then you, you're giving back people their freedom. You're saying to the, quote, children who are, quote, bad, you actually had a wider range of possibilities than your parents. And to the good children, you're saying it's not too late. <laughs> okay? And I, I was just thinking, I just read a, a very lovely article that said, um, taking psychedelic mushrooms cured my atheism. <laughs> okay? And it's someone who was in one of these uh, very legal super cool uh, reason, realistic studies, reasonable, you know, recent studies in depression. And uh, this young woman who had been a very serious atheist um, got in touch with what she called kind of greater, you know, divinity, kind of the, the, the great force, the undifferentiated uh, wholeness of humanity or of, of universe. And she indicated that um, her depression lifted, but also she had this huge shift in her belief system, which was bigger than the old one. And the nice part about transpersonal psychology is it's simply bigger than the, the psychologies that it grew out of. Just as psychology itself grew out of philosophy and religion, because they were, in a sense, systems, and they weren't dealing much with individual differences. Psychology dealt with individual differences, and then it began to deal with people who, who weren't winning in the, in the social world. And in certain countries, for instance, um, being an extrovert is, makes you a little out of place. And in other cultures, being an introvert makes you out of place. There's nothing good or bad about being an introvert or an extrovert, um, but it is useful to be able to, to know when, when to be which. Yeah, I like how you said transpersonal psychology is bigger than its um, constructs that it's built upon. I think it leaves a lot of opening and a lot of creates a lot of safe space for people to be able to talk about 
some of those issues that are so profound. Um, one of those being the mystical experience. And I was hoping to talk to you a little bit about that and pick your brain. Um, a big part of my dissertation and probably my biggest uh, influencer of why I'm even choosing this path is um, to explore some of those questions. I mean, I've had some of those uh, mystical type, uh, mystical experience, peak experience, um, you know, um, higher state of consciousness type experience where you kind of break through and um, there is this experience of the divinity, the connectedness of everything, but that we are a part of that connectedness. And it brings me to the questions, um, you know, is that, um, you know, is that a collective consciousness? Are we these individual fractalized consciousness that, that need to just realize that we're part of this bigger consciousness? And I think that the mystical state um, opened that up for me personally. And that's what I'd like to, what I'd like to put my effort into. Um, I know a lot of people have studied, uh, you know, high dose psychedelic sessions can, can elicit these states quite frequently. Um, and the long-term benefits uh, to well-being come from those mystical experiences themselves. But there's not much uh, research being done into the facilitators of these mystical experiences, like what specific set and setting, both internal and external, um, could be helping to precipitate mystical experiences in some people and some in not, or even within the same person. Um, try, I'm trying to get more people, more mystical experiences, if, if that makes sense, because it is so important in my personal life um, to help me feel connected, help me feel like I have meaning and purpose, like I have, um, you know, like my consciousness means something. Right. Well, not only your your consciousness means something, but it is uh, a tiny infinitesimal bit of consciousness. So it also means, in the, in the Buddhist sense, it also means nothing. Right? When they say, the Buddhists say you have no self, they're not really saying you have no self. They're saying you have the same self that that not only everyone does, but all the trees and all the rocks have, because the universe is composed of self. And when you have that experience, someone else looks at you and you just, what I just said, and they go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And if they hadn't had that experience, they look at you and think, I wonder how soon I can leave this room and will this, this being attack me? Mm -hmm. Because the, um, the mystical experience simply breaks apart the, the illusion of separation. I mean, if, I, if I'm sitting here, um, in California, and I'm sitting on a chair. Now the chair is separate from me, but not exactly. And if we actually look at the atomic level, what we see is a lot of uh, individual atoms of me are going into the chair, and a lot of the chair's atoms are floating in the surface of me. So there's actually at the quantum at the physics level not even at the quantum physics level just at the atomic level an interpenetration of things and uh, i just recently was seeing a fantastic film called actually fabulous fungi i saw that and one line in it has stuck with me it's a woman mycologist talking about the the amount of spores that are in the atmosphere and she said for example in the last breath you took you inhale about 10 fungal spores. And I thought, whoa, 
<laughs> so we are, we and fungi are in this incredible game. If should we continue breathing, we're in it. So the, the experience of not being separate is enormously relieving. And the first, in some sense, children start by not being separate. They then learn that their physical form uh, has separation. It's at the level of separation. So that uh, if they're hungry, their twin being fed doesn't have any, doesn't affect them. So there is a level where the, 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 the separate beings do operate. And that's in, good to know. But as soon as you assume that that separation is at the next level, then you get in trouble. See, then you say, I am separate from, and then you begin to either be lonely or you develop a small group like, um, um, we're the people who know truth. Mm. And the people who don't know truth um, are bad. And so, in fact, if they really don't know truth, it's okay to hurt them. And if they're the wrong, quote, religion, meaning if they think God is a different flavor than I think God is, it's okay to kill them. What I've found if you say to people, I've never found anyone who's taken me up on this, if, if there's separation, would you, for instance, take a hammer and hit your own hand? And they say, no, I wouldn't do that. And you say, why? You say, it's my hand. You say, well, if other people are part of you, does that apply the same way? And then we have a discussion. So when someone says, I hate someone, what they're saying is, I'm creating a separation. And going back to the selves, is it's very hard to hate all of someone. Right? There's a wonderful Chinese saying is there's no such thing as a bad person. And the the say the example they give is you're passing by a well. And you see a child fall into the well. And they say, everyone will stop and pull the child from the well. No one is so bad. That, and why are you pulling the child from the well? It's not your child. Maybe it's not your village. But you have a connection to that child. And you know that without having to ask yourself. And so the... The, the, the illusion of separation is necessary for some kinds of functioning and not necessary for important um, human interaction. It gets in the way. Yeah, and if, um, you know, and I, I think of the mystical experience as kind of, um, you know, it's, it's much bigger than, it, it underlies all religious um, underpinnings right um that's what all these stories come from are from people actually having these mystical experiences and then coming back and sharing it um and if this mystic if the mystical state um helps to remind us that we are all connected it would make sense that um that we want to get more people to have more mystical experiences in one way or another so with all your explorations with high dose sessions um in all different contexts, uh, what do you see as some of the additional correlates of mystical or peak experiences besides just the dosage of the molecule? Well, um, the, the thing about a, a psychedelic 
and there are other ways of getting there, but that's the, the one I know best, is it's, it's an opener. However, it, you open into the situation you're in, and you're very, very sensitive to it. So when we talk about a set or setting, meaning what's your emotional likelihood, what's your anticipation, what's your intention, that turns out to be very critical. Also, the situation you're in. Uh, I remember someone writing me a wonderful little comment when I was doing some research, uh, which is the psychedelic session really was going wonderfully until the car caught on fire. (laughs) Now, all of a sudden, the setting has gotten very difficult. And it's very hard, you know, to be in the I love all humanity and I am a flower and you are a tree when somebody's got to do something so you don't all get killed. So you have to pull yourself back into the situation of being a separate being and deal with it. And you may not come back out of that. Now, what we're finding is when people have what they call bad trips, which we're replacing that, by the way, with the word challenging. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reason is because in reflection, most people indicate they got more total learning about how to be in this world out of the difficult trip, the challenging trip, than, quote, good ones. Now, I'm not sure that one needs to be to suffer to learn, but it's, it, it's out there. And so the, the mystical experience, um, well, there's, a, there's an early, if we take an earlier one, and I, I used to say to people who were stuck on a belief, I said, your beliefs change. You, they're, the, they're the most flexible part of you. And I say, for instance, and I'm talking now to a bunch of adults, does anyone remember when they knew that if someone put their tongue in your mouth, And they all kind of, you know, you watch this reflection. Of course, we all felt that was really, uh, at the very least, yucky, depending on our vocabulary. And yuck. And then we found out, as our hormones changed, that our belief system changed. And what you begin to notice is your, if your belief systems are changing, and you go back 10 or 15 years and say, gee, I believe this, but I now believe the opposite. What makes you think that the belief you have now is any more stable or, quote, better than the one you gave up? So that what I say to people is what you're after is beliefs that serve you. For instance, I think that that people are basically good. That's a belief system. Now, as a result, I get cheated. I get phone scammed. I sometimes even will respond when my computer says, um, we found a, a virus and all you have to do is press here and we will trap you into it. However, I think it's a healthier way to live to think that most people are good because people tend to respond to your belief system as well. Mm-hmm. So a practical application of the kind of unity of all beings is to treat people that way which evokes in them the part of them that knows. See, there's a a question we get into as well. Do we really need more people having mystical experiences because we've had them and we think we're better people? And then you say, well, does the system of consciousness demand self-knowledge? 
And the answer is maybe. Um, and I look, for instance, at, at a species who I like better at the moment than human beings, which is trees. Uh, they cooperate with each other, they help each other, they also help different species, which we could learn a lot from. And the question is, are they, do they have a mystical experience or do they not need it? Mm -hmm. you know, do they already live in a universe of motion and togetherness and cooperation where it's part of the way they simply are? So um, we may be, we may be actually that Christian myth. We may have left the garden and fallen into, not into ignorance because we didn't get the tree of knowledge. And so mystical experience is one of the ways we get back to the garden. But we don't all have to get back. Um, we have to watch out that we're not saying to people, just as my uh, right-wing Christian friends say, um, if I say, you're not saved until you've had the mystical experience, and I happen to have this psychedelic drug, which will get you five to 20 years in some states, um, but it's really good that you have it and have my experience. So we have to watch out for the same spiritual bigotry among us enlightened, wonderful, new age people as we find in all those terrible people who don't agree with us. Yeah, and that's what I think I like the most about the mystical experience is how individualistic it is. I mean, my experiences are different from yours, and they're all based largely around our belief systems. I mean, I see, uh, you know, visions of Buddha and things like that, and someone of a Christian faith will see different um, imagery and, and archetypes and things like that. Um, but it seems like, and you're right, I don't think everyone needs the mystical experience. It just seems like a good way to get people to realize or to wake up that they are connected to those that they even, you know, hate parts of, and they should probably start looking at themselves. Um, you know, I, I always try and, and reflect on myself. Like if I, if I, um, if I come across somebody and, and I'm perturbed by them in some way, I'm, I'm usually quick to ask myself, well, what part of me is being reflected in, in them that I'm not liking? And is this a part of myself that I need to examine um, and so I'm, I'm consciously aware of that, but I don't know how many people out there are, are um, pushing themselves in these ways to, to move forward towards that, uh, you know, the breaking of the, the conditioning that we all have growing up here in the West. Well, it's, it's, it's tricky because I actually totally share your belief, which is I think more people have, have returned to the experience that they had before birth. That would be valuable. That makes them into better people. However, um, the universe may not agree with me. Okay? I, what I've noticed now and then when I ask the universe something and it says, you really think you're going to understand the And I go, <laughs> and I recall very vividly, the image really is you, you, you go to a, a coral reef. A coral reef has maybe 10,000 different species. And you find someone, some being that lives on that reef, has lived on that reef for generation after generation. It's a parrotfish. And you catch this parrotfish and you say, can you describe the ecology of the reef? Parrotfish looks at you and says, I have a brain smaller than a peanut. What would make you think I understand the ecology of the reef? 
okay? And then I step back and I say, I've had the mystical experience. I understand the way the universe is put together. And I hear a voice saying, hello, parrotfish. <laughs> Are you kidding? Mm-hmm. Okay. You haven't, you, you can't even solve aging. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, you still think your personality um, exists. You don't have the faintest thing. You don't know anything about anything. And having had the mystic experience, it's true, you're nicer. And one of the things that I know, um, I do a lot of facilitating of groups. And several times I've facilitated a group of researchers, psychedelic researchers, each one of whom is a leader, is smart, is kind of a slightly arrogant, has had these experiences. And they are the easiest group to work with I have ever dealt with. They are the fastest to get off of it if it isn't working. No blame and, and move the, the conversation or the exercise or what we're doing into a different place. And because uh, I remember the first time I was going to work with them, I was asked by MAPS to do it after one of their giant conferences. And I thought this is going to be really hard. Because these are all the people who, you know, who lead such groups or who, you know, run very big organizations. High expectations. And they just said, you know, we're here to cooperate with each other, period. Um, and I worked with enough classy groups as a consultant um, in industry and so forth to know the difference. So one of the things I can say about the mystical experience, at least in the psychedelic group, is they're nicer. They're less, they're less committed to their belief and more committed to being of value. Mm. Now, if I deal with people who have achieved a mystical experience through a particular religious lens, they may or may not be able to let go of the lens. And, and I'll give you the example which probably has made me more tolerant for longer. So this is a the major psychedelic experience very early in my career, and I'm in infinite something, darkness perhaps, and there's a point of light, and it's very attractive. It's very, very attractive, and I am drawn to it, and literally I am flying towards this light, and it's feeling better and better, somehow as if it is loving me. And I see in front of me Jesus. And my own background is sufficiently agnostic at that point that that's disturbing. I think, okay, I mean, love, pouring, light, Jesus, okay. And I go right by Jesus. And I look back, and Jesus is actually a, like a stage prop. You can see the, the two-by-fours and the canvas from the back. And I turn and I go towards the light. And I realize that around that periphery where there's Jesus, there's also a cutout of Buddha and of Allah and of Zoroaster um, and Moroni, the angel of Mormon, so forth and so on. And so what I get is all of these figures who are like gates or doorways. They, they are different doorways. But once you open the door, it's the same light. And so that's given me a very, um, tolerant isn't the right word, because tolerant is, I can accept you, but 
um, that I get that every door opens. If every door opens to the same place, you don't worry about whether people are going in the door you like. And that's probably where the mystical experience has been most valuable. Okay. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And I'm wondering too, if, uh, so belief systems definitely shape your experience. Um, but differing belief systems don't necessarily mean one person over another will achieve more mystical experiences or, or of greater quality. Um, are there other potential, um, precipitatory factors to elicit the mystical experience, such as like expectation that you're going to achieve it. Um, I'm also playing with the idea uh, and it's more of a statistical turn, but um, regression to the mean. So uh, the further down the spectrum of depression you are, say with treatment resistant depression being at some of the lowest, then that might um, make you your potentiality for having a mystical experience higher than somebody who would come in with a, with a baseline depression score or no depression score. Um, so different, different things that we might be able to explore um, that I could ask some of the participants as far as what to explore are some of the precipitating factors. Well, in a funny way, it's like there's a, um, it may be, it's harder to climb a mountain if you're out of shape, but you can climb the mountain. And from the top, it doesn't matter how difficult it was. So um, remember that article I mentioned of the person who um, got over her atheism? That was taking a high dose of LSD, of, of psilocybin at John Hopkins for uh, continual deep depression. But what the Hopkins people also note, and what we knew even in the 60s, is you're much more likely to retain the benefits of a psychedelic experience if it gets, if there's a breakthrough to mystical awareness. Um, we never, we, we, we also probably had a lot of theories about that, but they were unimportant because the reality was very simple. If you get to the top of the mountain and you see the view, you can never unsee that view. If you don't get to the top of the mountain, the view is pretty good from part way up and you make a lot of improvements. So I think the question of um, will people who are more depressed find it harder to get a mystical experience, the answer might be yes. But if you, with psychedelics, there's a, one of the ways you make it easier for people to get a mystical experience is mechanically raise the dose. Mm -hmm. so, that, so that at the place where the personal is left behind and the transpersonal is the realm you're in. There's no difference between people. So that, that Mother Teresa and me are identical when we both let go of our personalities. Mm -hmm. Once we have personalities, she's a saint and I'm not. And we're, we're all clear about that. And the, I mean, here, here's, here's one of the little will tricks, which is the Buddhists say your goal in these 10 or 20 or 30 years of meditation is to get into this place of no self. The only way you can get into the place of no self is that the self, which has been doing all that meditating, doesn't get any of that benefit. Hmm. 
okay? So you, me who's sitting on my mat till my are paralyzed with arthritis, will never have that experience. Only by my being willing to not have that experience can that experience happen to the, to the being. So the ability to let go of expectation or even let go of outcome can have a significant um, impact. I think what I was saying with the rebound effect is more like um, the more severe PTSD you have or the more severe depression you have, it could make it more likely that you have a breakthrough experience. Um, and I love your, your metaphor for getting people to the summit um, or the journey to the summit. And you're right, if you're out of shape, there's going to be more of those challenging experiences that are going to be beneficial along the way. Um, the view is the same from the top, but if we can help maybe with a, with a, a new kind of rope or a new kind of, of uh, system to help people get to the top uh, where, where they may be quitting before the journey's over, I think that could, that could really push human consciousness forward. When, when people, up until very recently, whenever you gave a talk, say, about psychedelics, you would say, well, there are many ways to get to this same place. And you'd go meditation and chanting and drumming um, and fasting and so forth. But the fact is, none of us giving those talks ever liked those methods or we wouldn't be giving those talks. Okay? I notice if I go to a meditation talk, they don't say there's lots of other ways. They don't say, you don't need to meditate. You could take psychedelics. You could do fasting. They never say that. Okay, so what's going on here? What's going on here is culturally, we have a bias against that it isn't difficult. We have, a, we, the word shortcut always has a negative connotation. Mm. If I want to go, I was, I was looking at a, a lovely little article the National Geographic put out about going to certain national monuments, things that were national parks, and they took away their park because they couldn't staff them or political changes, but they're still wonderful places to go to. And they mentioned that there was two places which were very popular and were similar. One was Pikes Peak and one was this other one. And this other one had this dreadful road, which you could barely get up on a four-wheel drive, and then Pikes Peak then got a road. And Pikes Peak became insanely popular, and nobody even knows the name of this other one. Okay? So there are people who say, well, you're cheating if you use the road. And the answer is, okay. We're all going to the same place. If, if the goal is to go to the top, I'm not cheating. If the goal is to make it really difficult to get to the top, you're entirely right. And my... The psychedelic people tend to be the people who say, well, I actually never intended to go to the top anyway. I was just tripping. I just had no idea very often what I was getting into. So it was what's called in the Catholicism, gratuitous grace. Mm -hmm. The Catholics have a problem, which is a bunch of terrible people now and then in history have these incredible mystical breakthroughs. And they're, they're terrible people, according to the church. They're thieves or villains or prostitutes or, um, or Jews or, you know, whatever it is. And so Catholicism said, we can't deny the reality of their experiences. But we also are aware that they didn't follow the rules that we give you to get you to those experiences. So we're going to make a category called gratuitous grace, which is you don't deserve it. 
but sometimes God actually does things that we don't understand. So I, I love that. See, I love that when people try and deal with, it's true, but it's not in my system. And, and many, many years ago, we were developing a little test of what it, did you have any belief changes after the mystical experience, which we both obviously have had, changes in belief. And I, I, being a graduate student, I made up a little test of different beliefs that we'd gotten from people who'd been having mystical experiences in our enlarged treatment center. And I then gave it to some people. And this wonderful woman came up and said, this item, I said, what's the matter with this item? She said, it's true, but I don't believe it. How should I mark it? Okay. And I looked at her and I said, mark it false. <laughs> uh, I could have also said market true, but this is wonderful. See, for her, it was, it was, she was incredibly aware of the situation, which is, this is true, but I don't believe it. You've asked me only to mark in one place. Okay. Now, I'd say if I were designing such a test today, I would probably have that category. <laughs> because that's a wonderful category of where, where do I get off? Okay, where do I stop believing? And if you talk even among the psychedelic world, there are all kinds of things they don't believe. You know, that there's, they have all their limitations too. And um, that's perfectly realistic because they're coming at it from my beliefs. For instance, one of the things that, that I love it when people have a mystical experience and God speaks to them. And I say, what language did God speak? And he always speaks to them in their language. And I think, I bet that's not true. <laughs> okay? I bet either God speaks all languages, which is a nice one, or there's a system where the energy is translated into something you can handle. And if you go into Christian mysticism, um, St. John of the Cross basically says the same thing. He says, if you have a vision of the archangel gabriel or the gates of heaven opening he says don't be confused that's not what you're that's not what's going on at all he says that's god stepping it down the way we step a transformer down until we get to where you have some metaphors that we can use so just as god speaks to me in english and in the shabibo in peru when they're being ayahuasca the shaman is hearing things in shabibo the people around the room from Brooklyn and France and Liberia are hearing it in their language. So that's one of those ways in which we have to understand that even if we've had this incredible transcendental experience, it was filtered down so we could handle it. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Um, and we're, we're right at an hour. I was wondering if you have the time uh, for a couple more questions. Okay, great. So um, kind of venturing away from higher dose mystical experiences and going into the realm of microdosing, um, I, I've been following your work for a long time, and uh, I think I'm not alone in considering you one of the godfathers of microdosing. Um, so perfect person to ask these questions. And your, my first introduction to you when I met you at the conference in 2017, the MAPS conference, you and I had a, a good conversation just out in the hallway outside the presentation center about um, the idea of performance enhancement through psychedelics. Um, not only mental performance enhancement, like with this, the stuff you've uh, studied on creativity and 
uh, mental flexibility and things like that. But also uh, in my experiences with using it for jujitsu, um, noticing um, at least subjective physical performance enhancement. Uh, you know, I notice, or I seem to notice uh, better balance, um, increased access to my innate strength. That's another one of those governors that I think that our body systems naturally put on us. I think our musculature and skeletal system is actually a lot more capable of lifting and doing more things, but our our mental governor sets that limit. So on the microdose, that kind of gets released a little bit. I feel like I have more access to my innate strength, um, innate cardiovascular, but also for jujitsu, it's a, it's a ground fighting art. And so it's very much uh, chess-like. So there's a lot of strategy. There's a lot of creative problem solving. There's a lot of thinking multiple moves ahead and running multiple simulations in, in your head while responding somatically to your partner and to these energies. And I'm noticing all sorts of benefits from microdosing. I think that um, in some of the other anecdotal reports, there's quite a few for coming from like extreme sport athletes um, extreme snowboarders, things like that in the X games. And I'm hearing it more and more happening in my particular sport of interest in combat sports. So jujitsu, but also in uh, mixed martial arts and like the UFC, I'm, I'm connected with some of those fighters in there and they say that they use it in their training to enhance, um, uh, to enhance neural connectivity, to enhance, uh, you know, almost like a nootropic, um, they say it, they do better with it. Yeah. And I, I don't have the whole headline, but it's a wonderful headline because it includes something like LSD helps jujitsu expert whoop ass. Okay. And that, you know, you're going to hand a the headline writer something for that. And as you read the article, what this guy says is, as a, as a summary, I used to get silver medals. Now I get gold. Okay, so whatever he's doing, he says microdosing is invaluable in making that shift. Now, he also says he wants to get married microdosing and have a martial arts wedding with everybody tripping. So he's an interesting guy. But what you're noticing in your sport and what you're talking about others is that microdosing, let's be clear, microdosing psychedelics has one defining characteristic. No classical psychedelic effects at all. No visions, no angels, no dramatic insights, no finding what your karmic connections were, um, no awareness of the divinity of all things. However, if you're a runner, you'll run faster. If you're a chess player, you'll be able to have better strategy. If you're taking um, analytic chemistry, you'll do better on your tests. It improves your capacity for performance. Now, that in itself um, should frighten an enormous number of sports organizations. Mm -hmm. Okay, Not only that, but you're taking a substance, let us say LSD, where you're taking five millionths of a gram it's mainly gone from the body in a few hours. And I don't know enough about uh, sports testing, but I bet they don't test for it. And, as, and it gives you a clear advantage. So just looking at microdosing in the, in, the, in the professional sports arena, it's a disruptor. 
And we know, the other thing in, uh, we know is that whether it's legal or not, it will be used. Yeah, I agree with you that it's a disruptor, um, but almost at, at such low potentiality for harm, I, I see it maybe on the same level as Gatorade. You know, Gatorade in sports, if you have one athlete on Gatorade, the other on water, the one in Gatorade is going to have a clear advantage. Um, so, you know, I see it as as innocuous as that uh, as far as harm goes. I see it. Oh, absolutely. See, one of the things you look at is what's the risk-benefit ratio? The risk of microdosing is incredibly low. High-dose psychedelics, as we know, are among the safest drugs out there in terms of physical problems. Microdosing being a tenth to a twentieth are much less. It's A successful microdose has no discernible um, biological effects, meaning your blood pressure doesn't go up and so forth and so on. Um, now, if your reflexes are, are 5% faster, that's huge in professional sports. Um, and it needs to be looked at. Now, if we look at it in the academic world, here's two groups of students, and they're identical in terms of their test scores. And now we give one group microdosing, and their test scores go up. Is that fair? Okay. What's the moral issue here? And I recall when I was teaching in design engineering at Stanford, the question at that point was coming on is could students, and this dates me, could students use mechanical calculators in a test when the other students were using slide rules? And it was an issue because it was clear that students who used the first handheld calculators had an advantage. And then the question we now have, you know, um, now since knowledge is accessible, you know, most of human knowledge is accessible, um, a whole lot of the educational system might need to be relooked at. And with microdosing, we're simply looking at if something improves functioning, what does the culture do with that? Given that the things you're using to improve functioning a lot of them are still, for reasons that have nothing to do with science, illegal. Yeah, and so that's a big part of my own lens coming at it from a social work perspective is this social justice, or social justice moralistic piece. Um, I'm a believer that we as humans innately should have freedom over our own consciousness and the ability to explore it or manipulate it in whatever way we want. And right now we're being restricted with that in sports and in academia and things like that. So this moralistic issue, I think, comes down to are they are the powers that be going to allow us to start, you know, to give us the reins over our own consciousness? And that's a big issue. Well, I, I think there are three basic freedoms. One is the freedom to know God. I think that you should be allowed to approach divinity, whatever you mean by that, <clears throat> if you don't hurt anybody. I think you need to have the freedom to discover what the physical, material, biological world is, called science. You need not to be prevented from studying or learning about anything. And I think you should have the freedom inside yourself to improve yourself. Mm -hmm. Any civilization that restricts 
the freedom to know divinity, the freedom to know the world, and the freedom to know yourself is a society which will be superseded by a better one. So that's a kind of um, kind of strong claim, but that's really where I'm coming from. That's my basics, and so my career has been to make it easier for people to have those three freedoms. And if you if you can't know yourself because you're in trauma, well, I support things that release trauma. If you can't study certain kinds of science because it's against the political or the moral or the religious system that needs to be opened. And in terms of rediscovering your connection to divinity, um, by now I have to say that should be obvious. Yeah, uh, and I wanted to share a story with you too um, about uh, my, I guess, more recent microdosing and jujitsu combination. And uh, so I had a professional jujitsu match last February in Denver. Um, and uh, I didn't win the match, but it was a, it was a hard fought ba- battle, very uh, challenging, very good match back and forth. And afterwards, um, you know, I'm still feeling good from the microdose. And um, I come to find out through, you know, most of my opponents become my friends after after we share that kind of struggle on the mat together we end up being friends and i really like that about our sport and so i reached out to him on facebook and told him about that night and i said look man i was i was on a a microdose of lsd that night and um you know and he just happened to say hey i was microdosing that night too on psilocybin and so we both had a good laugh and it seemed like it was almost like a battle of the molecules that night and psilocybin won out, unfortunately, for, for me that night. But it was a great connection just to see, like, you know, two opponents at this high level coming together with no previous contact with each other. I mean, as opponents, you don't talk to them. And and then we come to the mat having different but similar uh, experiences and intentions. And then afterwards, that becomes a, a more connecting bonding experience between the two of us. I actually had him on the podcast a couple of episodes ago to talk about that. It was really cool. See, that's wonderful because what's happened in the culture is in spite of the fact that, quote, these are, quote, illegal, um, it's basically ignored because it's not harming people and it benefits. Now, um, there was a period in American history where they prohibited alcohol. What happened in that period is drinking went up, alcohol was sold in more and more uh, condensed forms. It's easier to transport vodka than a bunch of beer. And um, I think my favorite statistic was around Times Square in New York, before prohibition, there was 500 places you could have a drink. During prohibition, there was 2,000. Okay. So, A culture, in spite of its legal restrictions, you don't, people don't like their consciousness restricted in either direction. So the fact that this wonderful, you know, um, you with your secret powers (laughs) find that your opponent who you've never met from some other part of the country has the same secret powers suggests that in the brotherhood of your martial art, it's already understood that we've equalized the playing field. (laughs) 
we're still back to <clears throat> who is better that evening uh, at that particular time. Um, and that I love that story, okay? Because what it says to me is um, microdosing has entered the culture and the fact that it happens to be illegal seems to matter less and less. Um, there's an article that I just love, which is about the trivialization of this. And it's the question of, should you have microdosing on your first date? And the woman who wrote the article um, said that she was a, in college, early college, and she was invited to sex parties. Sex parties where you're supposed to hook up with someone. And she went to three of them and never connected to anybody. And she said, it could have been because I don't drink and I don't smoke pot. She said, but the fourth party I microdosed and I had my first hookup. <laughs> and then she interviews about lower anxiety to make them feel just more comfortable with, without a, a heavy sexual connotation. But as I read the article, I thought, um, the research will eventually come, but so much later. See, one of the things is science has this fantasy. See, if you listen to scientists, they say, well, we can't say anything about microdosing because we don't have a double-blind study. And I think, are you saying you're not able to speak about human experience until there's a double-blind study? And some of them kind of say yes. <laughs> you know, they say, that's the only way I can think. And I think, well, um, if you were an Orthodox Jew or a fanatic Muslim um, or a Shiva worshiper or an evangelical Christian, you would have the same comment, which is there are certain ways I have to think of things and that's the way it is. And that's not harmful. It's silly. Um, for instance, I don't think there's ever been a double blind study about people putting their tongues in each but it still seems to be done. Can you so, bring up, yeah. um, I don't worry about the science. I worry about the cultural effects and the cultural results, and that seems to be doing well. And you bring up a good point about the randomized control trials. I think there was a guy recently um, who published a self-study randomized blinded study uh, on microdosing and reported no benefits. I think his name was Gorn. Um, but again, um, you know, you bring up a good point that if you are locked into this reality where you have to have scientific evidence to inform your decisions day to day, then that's where you're at. For me, I, I have way, way more uh, anecdotal evidence that says it does work and it works for me, whether it's placebo or not. And it's definitely not. Um, you know, I can still look at that scientific study and question it. Well, it, actually, if you read his study very carefully, his bias that it isn't going to work gets louder and louder. Um, and, it's, and it's a fascinating study because he really does a very good job of setting up a potentially real double blind, but we're talking not about a very large effect. And um, since now, you know, if you go to Reddit, Reddit has a sub-edit called microdosing. There's 88,000 people on it. So um, probably it's not, probably, and if it is, you see, if it's a placebo, as one of our subjects said, 
I don't care if it's a placebo. I haven't felt this good in 30 years. And the word placebo actually is a terrible word because it's, it's a kind of bias word. We're against it. The correct term is called natural healing response. And the natural healing response, anything that you can do that brings that on is beneficial. So when you've microdosed and then get on the mat, your natural healing response improves your flexibility, your reflexes, and your sense of strategy. And, um, you know, I would, I would love it if actually microdoses simply were the best placebo we've ever developed. Yeah, I agree. And whether it's placebo or not, if it works, it works, and it gets us to the top of the mountain. I'll get to the top of the mountain with a placebo. Exactly. Exactly. So, so again, that's the see the science game is in its rules. Um, in a sense, double blind has kind of gotten a lot more credit for being valuable than it is. Its actual use is if you have two substances, say antidepressants, and you want to sell this new one. You want to do a study against the old one and the new one to show whether your new one is any better. That's a good use of a double blind because you're choosing between similar things. And when someone says, well, we need a double blind study, I say, well, let me give you an example where I don't think you need a double blind study. Is here is a, a foam, kind of a foam bat, and here's a two by four. Now, I'm going to hit you over the head with one or the other. Do you really think we need to do this study? <laughs> okay. Or would you in advance make a, an educated guess that one of them will have more of an effect? Okay. And so you have to look at the, at when, when science or religion, or any dogma, any dogmatic system says this has to be, that's a place to look because then you're finding the bias, not necessarily the best answer. And I know that if they do a bunch of studies and find that the that there's no effect of microdosing, it will affect, it will change nobody's behavior. Sure. You know, just as if they found out that putting your tongue in someone's mouth doesn't lead to pregnancy, <laughs> people will still go for it. <laughs> so. yeah, you have the best metaphors. Um. I'm going to use some of them. Um, so I wanted to just say real quick that that article that you mentioned um, about the jujitsu fighter and the yeah. microdosing, that was actually me in the article. Yeah. <laughs> so that was written about me. And um, a lot of those things came true. Um, I did get married. My wife and I both took microdoses on the day of the wedding. Uh, not the whole crowd was microdosing, but a good number of them were uh, microdosing something. And we did get married in our jujitsu geese. I'll send you pictures. It was a great experience. So um, that article, you know, I was set when, when they interviewed me for that. I was set on those intentions and I made them happen. Oh, I think that is, that, see, that's the, that's the kind of science I like, which is I love that article. And mainly because what I wanted to do is put it in a scientific journal with the headline. Because I just love the headline about can whoop ass. Mm -hmm. Because that's not the kind of uh, reference that you find in the Journal of Psychopharmacology. So part of my loving that article was the headline, because it was not surprising to me that someone, I'm so happy it was you. That's such a fun. <laughs> and I'm so glad you got married and you did it as you wished. Oh, I'd say if we needed to have an ending, 
that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so do you see good things for us in the future? Good, uh, good things coming from this, um, this new Renaissance and what are maybe some of the things we need to watch out for? Well, what's happening now is the, the vultures of greed have flown in mm -hmm. and, just, and uh, there's now a venture fund for psychedelics. There are laboratories who are trying to develop alternative substances, either to avoid the, to get patents, but also there's a whole bunch of them saying, well, I want to make a psychedelic which has no psychedelic mental effects. Yep. Uh, and my feeling is, I was distressed at that, but I talked to one of my friends. He said, well, it isn't going to change spiritual uh, experiences because we're all going to use the real thing um the decriminalization the, the saying that nature it's a wonderful notion that you decriminalize nature this is a huge shift and it's it's something i've said for years is the wonderful thing about mushrooms is they don't know they're illegal for instance they grow all over england there's something called fairy caps and they're a psychedelic mushroom and they grow all over england um, regardless of what the laws are. Um, there's a hundred different psilocybin species around the planet. Um, you can buy on Amazon a number of active psychedelics. You can buy the, uh, the ayahuasca vine. You can buy the San Pedro cactus, which has mescaline. You can buy something called a Peruvian torch, which is another cactus, which is even stronger. This is on Amazon. Okay. This is when, when the substances in them are, you know, our, our, our schedule one, no known use, okay? Except for the few thousand years of use. So we're at a kind of silly time in the legal point. And that science is catching up with, it hasn't begun to catch up with the indigenous culture, but it is catching up with the culture. And I hope it goes faster. And someone said to me, will there be misuse of psychedelics? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely, there'll be terrible things that I will just feel terrible about, and that's the way it goes. You know, uh, marijuana now has become, you know, uh, you know, candies. Okay, that's not exactly the sacred use of the plant, and it turns out you can now use yeast to create THC and CBD. So you don't need the plant at all. And there's also a synthesis of psilocybin the same way, starting with bacteria. So we're going to, we in the West will screw around with it and distort it in every possible way. And thank goodness the plants will just continue producing plants. And the fungus will keep producing mushrooms. And the people who meet at the top of the mountain, on the whole, won't care how they got there. But they will be, you know, when you talk to mountaineers or long distance runners or, or people in your sport, which is a combat sport, you say, we become friends. So people who take psychedelics will continue to become friends and there will be less depression. You know, we now have a way for depression, for migraines, probably for cluster headaches, um, for all kinds of, of things that, that people shouldn't need to suffer from. That's all going to happen, regardless of the laws. And once I got that, probably psychedelics will be accelerated as soon as greed enters the, the situation. Look what happened with marijuana. 
Um, sure, it'll be misused. Everything can be. Will it be also used correctly? Yes. And will psychologists need to take into account more of consciousness? Yes. Will psychiatrists need to take in more of consciousness? Yes. Will physicians need to take in more of the biome and its little thousand species of bacteria than the brain? Probably yes. That feels all kind of fun and beneficial. Will we outlast climate change? Uh, ask me in a thousand years and I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, I want to say thank you again for spending so much time with me today. And um, it's always wonderful to talk to you. I wish I got more and more opportunities to talk to you. Hopefully I'll see you at some, some conferences next year or something like that. But I just want to say deepest gratitude for your insights and the work that you've done over your entire career. Um, I know for me, you have um, been an instrumental um, person mentoring me through your writings and, and things like that and have helped shaped me into the potential psychedelic researcher that I'm striving to be. I want to be uh, that new generation that takes the torch and, um, and moves the field and human consciousness forward. Well, you're doing what you're doing with your life in a sense validates mine. Okay. It's like I've been, you know, I've been throwing out a lot of seeds <laughs> and you, you, you young trees uh, make all the difference. So, and what a pleasure. And also I'm just so charmed and delighted by my favorite headline being you. <laughs> yeah. So it's I'll one of those, one of those, those fiction, a fiction story about two people in a bookstore who are online you know, uh, having a relationship with someone and a graduate, it's the, that's the way I feel. <laughs> that's great. Okay. Well, um, thanks uh, again, Jim. And um, I'll, I'll send you those wedding pictures so you can see. It was really cool. Terrific. Okay. Wow. So, so, so very grateful. Uh, thank you, Jim, for being on the show. Um, Man, it still still feels a little weird to call one of my heroes by their first name, but I'll take it. So thank you, Jim, uh, Dr. Fadiman, for being on the show. Uh, you truly have been an inspiration in my life and in my work and in my continued interest with not only psychedelics as a tool, um, but also consciousness um, as the underlying substrate that kind of makes up everything and sort of makes every other study of anything valid. So thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for all the work you've done in your entire lifetime over a long career, helping to lay a lot of the foundations that I'm trying to build off of now for, for my own work. Um, I hope to have you on uh, again in the future. And um, it's going to be really great to hopefully see you in the coming uh, year, 2020, at some of the uh, conferences coming up. So thank you very much. And um, to all you folks out there listening, I hope you gained a lot from it. I know I did. This is one of the most impactful podcasts that I've done personally for me. Um, so I want to say thank you to you listeners for listening to the show. As always, please like and share the podcast on your social media. That really helps us get the word out. Um, and also um, share it within your local communities, your, your families, your friends, things like that. Talk about these topics um, verbally. 
you know. Uh, also, if you find any value to this podcast whatsoever, um, please feel free to donate. There should be a link at the bottom of whatever podcast app you're listening to. Uh, donate to the show. Anything from a dollar, super helpful. Um, you know, some people have donated 10 15 $20. It's all great. Comes right into the podcast and goes back out to you listeners in the form of um, improvements in sound quality and production and um, equipment and um, new guests and things like that. So I uh, don't take any profit. Please donate if you find any value. Not necessary, though, if you still want to listen. That's your best way to support us. Also, go check out the YouTube page, uh, MindOps YouTube page, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. Um, uh, and contribute, guys. Uh, this is a collaborative effort, so please send me all your questions, comments, feedback. Uh, send me um, videos of interest on YouTube, things that we talk about. Um, if I say something on the podcast that is blatantly wrong, trust me, I say a lot of these things that are wrong. I'm not an expert by any means. Uh, please help correct me. Help correct my knowledge base, okay? I take all that stuff um, very seriously, and I want to be uh, the most uh, well-informed that I can be. So please reach out. Hope to hear from you soon. Thanks, Jim, and uh, until next time, folks, be good to each other. As we take a quick break from Conversations with the Mind, I just want to let you know that this award-winning episode of the podcast is brought to you by MindOps, so go check out the MindOps website, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. Now back to the show.